you could uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If anyone doesn't have a Bible, I have a piece of paper here with a passage written on it. Does anyone need one of these? Everyone's okay? 2 Chronicles 7.14. Everyone's found 2 Chronicles 7.14? Well, you'll remember that last Sunday, we spoke about intercessory prayer. For those who may be unfamiliar with what that means, it's a kind of prayer that approaches God on behalf of someone else, either an individual or a group or organization. And it's to bring that person or that group's needs before Him. Because people's needs can be often quite overwhelming and painful, uh, this kind of prayer often encompasses an emotional intensity, especially when you're carrying the pain of others. The first group of people that we were called to pray for, as you remember last week, was the government and those in authority, as hard as that may be. It was a convicting message for all of us, and if I'm being honest, um, Myself, as well as probably many of you, have failed to, to do that. We've been more critical than we have been praiseworthy in terms of bringing their needs before the Lord. But remember what Scripture taught us, and that is that the fact that when we intercede, our prayers can often be the catalyst needed to bring effective change to the society in which we live both in salvation for the leaders and even policy. And of course, we live under good government that sets the table for the gospel to go forward. And we spoke about this all in relationship to the vision we have at Genesis House, which is to be an externally focused church. We want the gospel to go forward. Well, today, we're going to speak about yet another way to intercede on behalf of society when we see brokenness everywhere. So why don't we stand together and read 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Please be seated. You'll notice here that the Lord lays out a process in which healing can be brought to society or a culture. God has his part and we have ours. Our part is to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek his face and turn from our sin. His part is to forgive sin and heal land, heal our land. Now, I, I realize that if you listen to various pastors from different churches, you're going to get mixed reviews on what this passage is speaking to. There are many within the Christian community that will say that this promise was reserved only for Israel in, in King Solomon's day. That's the context in which this happens. This is only a promise to Israel in Israel's day. And I understand why they would say that, and I even had reservations myself as I work through this passage. And, and the argument would go something like this. God had a unique covenant with Israel 
a unique covenant. It was laid out in Deuteronomy, especially in chapter 28 through 30. He says, if you obey me, you will receive these blessings. If you disobey me, you're going to receive these curses. And so therefore, a lot of those blessings and cursings not only had to do with the forgiveness of sins, it had to do with actually the agriculture, the land, and, the, and everything around it. If, if they obeyed, the land would be prosperous. If they didn't obey, the land would not be prosperous. That's why when Elijah prayed in James, like James uses Elijah as an example, that he prayed for th and three years, the rains were shut, and for, then he prayed again, and the, the rains were opened. Because God said in his covenant, if you obey me, the rains will be constant, and if you disobey me, I'm going to create famine in the land. And so Elijah knew to pray in a particular way, because God's word in his covenant said so. And so the idea here that these promises are reserved for Israel is often preached, and therefore you will not hear this sermon in other churches regarding the promises for today. And I totally get it. I understand that. I even had reservations about preaching it myself because of those reasons. But then a couple things sort of happened, and one of them is going to be a video, which I'm going to show you at the end of the day, at the end of this sermon, to, to express how this can still happen today. But the big thing is this. Just because you don't have an exact blueprint doesn't mean the principle still stands. What do I mean by this? For those of you who are present during the days when I preached on COVID, what did we use, principally speaking, to make our decisions by how we acted in this church? We went to the leprosy laws of the Old Testament, and we learned about how God dealt with infectious disease. So do we have leprosy in our church, in our community today? No, but we're able to use the leprosy laws and how God thought about disease and dealt with disease and how we were to determine our courses of action in this church. And I say this with absolutely no arrogance or conceit. Like it's praise to God that we obeyed his principles and our church is blessed for it. Our church is blessed for it. And so principally speaking, we, I do believe that the scriptures here have something to teach us and like I said, at the end of the at the end of the sermon, we're going to watch a video to show how these principles can still happen even today. So, first thing I want you to notice in this passage is who God is speaking to. He says, "If my people, if my people, not the people in secular society, but if my people." Who are my people? Well, in the Old Testament, and in the context, the original people are Israel, the Jews. And under the Old Covenant, you'll remember how they were described in Exodus 19 and verse 6. He referred to Israel as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That was the description God gave Israel in Exodus 19. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's interesting, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter uses the same description for Christians today. Those who have given their lives to the Lord and have trusted in Him fully. He, in verse 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, says to the Christian community, you are a bunch, like a bunch I guess, <laughs> of royal priests, a holy nation. The same title given to the Old Testament covenant people was extended to the believers today. 
people like yourself and myself. So what we don't want to miss here is that God's people are the ones that are to take the necessary steps to affect change. To affect change. So what does he desire from us? The first point is that we are to humble ourselves. So what is humility? If, if we're going to have to humble ourselves, we better know what it is. Well, in the Hebrew, the word just means to be subjected or subdued. It's often used in the Old Testament to describe the outcome of a defeated army. So, for example, when Israel would defeat the Philistines and they were under their authority or power, it says that Israel, quote-unquote, subdued or humbled the Philistine people. So you're already getting a picture of what humility looks like. In the New Testament, though, James proves to be very helpful because James sets up humility in opposition to pride. In opposition to pride. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So again, James sets humility in opposition to pride. Pride is expressed through the scriptures as arrogance, self-sufficiency, independence from God. It's something that you exert when you trust solely in yourself. And the problem is that the scripture clearly lays out the proud people make no room for God since they're fully consumed with themselves. In Psalm 10 and verse 4, the psalmist writes, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. So pride seeks to live life apart from God. God, I got this. I don't need you in this. I'm going to go full steam ahead. And really, you, you have very little significance in my decisions. And I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but people in ministry like myself, pastors, can often fall into this trap. You think, well, how is that possible? Well, it's pretty, pretty possible. You basically prepare your sermons every week, and you go into discipleships meeting, basically going, I've got this, God. I've got this, and I'll call on you when I need help. As opposed to saying, Lord, I can do nothing on my own initiative and in my own wisdom or strength. And I ask you to be with me and do it through me. I'm dependent, I'm not self-sufficient, and trust in me. Which raises an important point. Notice where humility is to come from. Where does God put the onus? He says, if my people would humble themselves. He's saying to the people, listen, men and women, you are to express humility. That's on you to become humble people. I say this because we could maybe pray, Lord, make me humble. God's like, I'm not in that business. I don't do that. In fact, I love you so much. I'll leave your free will intact to decide whether you trust me or not to humble yourself. I'm not going to give you a faith injection, if you will, like a little needle with, a, with the word faith or humility and, and put it through your veins. 
Because if then you choose to humble yourself, that's not an act of love. I've made you do something. I say this because this is just like forgiveness. Again, um, I, you know, oftentimes like we can pray, Lord, help me to forgive. Well, Jesus in Luke 17 or made that clear. That's what's required of you as my people. As if I've forgiven you, so as a forgiven people, you forgive. Humility is up to us and how we want to respond to the Lord. So it's our choice daily whether we want to be self-sufficient or find our sufficiency in Him. Whether we trust in Him or trust in ourselves. Whether we are boastful and arrogant or whether we, again, place our hope and value in Him. If humility is what He desires then, the natural question is, how do we do this? Well, I think our text answers it here. Part of being humble is to be a praying people, because to be a praying people is to say, God, we need you involved. To seek the face of God is, a, is an action of seeking, is to go after him and his ways, and him as a person. And most importantly, I think, in this whole thing is to turn from our wicked ways, to turn from sin. To turn from sin. Now, I'm going to spend some time on that aspect of it. All, actually, all of these aspects, in a few seconds here, we're going to go through all of these individually, what they look like. But for now, it is important to note that that's a major part of humility, is walking away from disobedience to God and embracing full obedience to Him. In the Old Testament, when you find the word humble used, it's often in relationship to penitent hearts. People who are remorseful and regret the decisions they've made and, and then vow to honor the Lord with the way they live. That is critical. But there's one more fascinating way in which humility is often shown in the Old Testament. The word humility is often linked to fasting. Fasting. What do I mean by fasting? The deliberate abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Fasting demonstrates a dependency fully on God. Or it can demonstrate a dependence on God. Let me show you three examples. King Ahab is famous because he was married to Jezebel, the wicked duo. He was responsible for bringing Baal worship into Israel, which led to their downfall. And this chapter occurs after he's killed Naboth, who owned a vineyard. Remember, he saw Naboth, uh, his vineyard. It was beautiful. He wanted it. And so Jezebel and himself came up with a plan to basically get rid of Naboth so that he could possess it. So he, he commits murder and uh, he steals, basically. Elijah goes up to Ahab and says, by the way, you're in deep trouble with the Lord and threatened him with some pretty severe consequences. So it says here, when Ahab heard these words from Elijah, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me, because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. 
when Ezra and the Jews were going to head back from out of exile of Babylon back to Jerusalem, they were worried about the safe passage because they had a, a lot of young kids with them and, some, and, their, and their mothers. And so they were a bit worried about the journey, that it was unsafe. So look what Ezra does. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. And one final one is King David. In praying for the sick, people ill around him. In Psalm 35 and 13, he says, Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. So you see, obviously, key in our Chronicles text that repentance, turning from sin, is absolutely critical in humbling ourselves. But there is another possible way, based on these Old Testament scriptures, that fasting can be part of that. Now, Jesus never commanded it. I'll do it straight up. In the New Testament, you'll never find anywhere where it's commanded that you must, as a Christian, fast. So you'll still go to glory, whether you never fast in your life or not. And ultimately, it's your, your, your biggest sign of your love for the Lord is your character. However, Jesus also recognized there may be times, though, when people choose to fast out of showing the, uh, a deep dependence on him to infect, affect change. So in Matthew 6, 16, when he gives instructions to the disciples, he just says, whenever you do fast, just do it in this way. And he says, don't do it to be noticed by people. Don't do it so you look spiritually mature and then gloat about it. Make sure that you do your fasting with a sincerity uh, in private or with other Christians that you know that are sharing in the same heart with you over the issues that you're facing. Now, I did a whole sermon on this, so if you want to hear about fasting, you can listen to it. But out of this humility, then, we learn that we can now pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So humility is, precedes prayer. And so what is prayer? Well, I love what the youth said to me on Friday night last month when we all met. I asked them, what do you think prayer is? And one young boy just said, young, young man, I should say, he says, it's just communicating with God. I'm like, yeah, that's a good definition. <laughs> it's just communicating with God. It's talking to him. So when we come to God in prayer, what does that do? Well, it simply demonstrates that you are dependent on him demonstrates you're dependent on him for providing solutions and answers. He, and, he is first and foremost your source of help. He is your first line of defense, if you will. Now, it takes humility to be a faithful prayer warrior. Why would I say that? Well, it's some of the hardest work we'll ever do. Some of the hardest work we'll ever do. And the reason is simply because most of us are tired by the end of the day or during throughout the day and distracted, and we're often busy. To discipline ourselves to, to pray on a regular basis is something that's hard work. And often it becomes sort of something we'll put off till later. 
And so, again, in humility, we have to be just always have God in our mind and bring our daily needs to Him and the things that are on our heart. Especially in the area when we're praying for healing of the land and healing of society. This is where often community can help. My prayer life has become stronger since I joined others and didn't do it as an island. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing it by yourself. And of course, that's where majority of prayer is going to be done, is on your own. But I sure can speak from personal experience that being in community in prayer has made a big difference to, to my consistency and the depth of the prayers that are spoken. The third thing here is we are to seek his face. Now, the word seek, when you look it up in the Old Testament, is primarily um, used with the idea of persistence. If you look up the word seek, it's not like a one undone. To seek after something is to be persistent in it, to persevere. It's used, for example, in Exodus chapter 4, where Pharaoh and his men are pursuing Moses after he killed one of the Egyptians. So that wasn't like a, like, you know, a quick manhunt that lasted three minutes and it was over with. That would have taken some persistence on their part. We get a real sense of persistence in Hosea 10, 12. Oh. He says, sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes. So how long did this seeking go for in Hosea? The seeking continued until God provided an answer. That's a pretty long time for some situations, isn't it? But he continued to seek, he continued to seek until he came. This is confirmed also in terms of persistence when we look at Deuteronomy 4.29. Here it's written that there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. So again, we get this idea of a full commitment, like a full commitment from an individual in terms of going after God. When you think about the word face, seeking his face, face is often interchanged in the Old Testament with being in the presence of God. So in Genesis 3.8, when Adam and Eve ran away, it says that they hid from his presence. The word presence is the word face in Hebrew. So he, they hid from his face, they hid from his presence, it's the same thing. So there's a clear picture that emerges here. This is a, to seek after his face is this persistent desire to know God, to be with him, to draw close, to hunger. It's like a yearning persistence after him. And so this is important as we seek the Lord, the way we seek the Lord in terms of healing for our, our land. And finally, we are to turn from our wicked ways. We are to turn from sin. What strikes me in this verse is that the sins that are to be turned from are the ones of the believers. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. 
and turn in their wicked ways. A big part of the healing of our society comes with, from the Christian community taking care of their own sins in their own lives and in the corporate church. As God's people, although we're forgiven by Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, often sin can take hold of our lives after the fact and affect those around us and within the church. The New Testament is filled with examples of this. I mean, the Corinthian church alone can do, do your head in when you read about all the things that occurred in their lives. The sexual immorality, the divisions and the jealousy, the infighting, the lawsuits, their syncretism by going back to the temple and so on. One can read the first uh, chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation to know that this can happen. There are two, well, there's different things that can happen in the, in the Christian community. There's two ones that sort of came to mind as soon as I was preparing. A lot of the Christian church struggles and suffers and has not repented from unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. We speak about forgiveness and unforgiveness and we, 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 you know, we're happy to do it as a Sunday school lesson for kids. We're happy to teach them all the parables and different things and do it as a lesson for kids, but yet fail to live it out in our own lives. To, to truly forgive in our own lives. And so we are forgiven people through the cross, but then we don't want to offer it to other people. And it wreaks havoc, wreaks havoc in the families of origin, it wreaks havoc in the workplace, it works it works havoc in marriage. It wreaks havoc in the church community. And so, again, big piece in terms of us moving forward to the Lord is our willingness to forgive those who have offended us. How do you know if you're an unforgiving person? Well, there's, there's a couple tests. Are you, do people have to walk on eggshells around you? If people have to walk on eggshells around you, then that's a good indication that maybe you have unforgiveness in your life because they're afraid at any moment. You're so sensitive to blow up. Are you half, you know, glass half empty kind of person? Everything's everyone else's fault. Quick to anger. These are all signs of unforgiveness. But the Lord has provided a way. First John 1 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive. It's done just like that. That's the Lord. If you want to know how to forgive, I did a sermon on that, and I can uh, give you the notes about how to freely let go of people that have offended you. But another big one is anger. Another one is anger. Anger is something that, again, is easily hidden in the church walls. We're all, I've never seen really anyone get angry on a church during a church service. But an hour later, behind closed doors, different story. And we might be able to hide our anger behind these doors. But there's an all-knowing God in heaven that sees absolutely everything we do. 
And so again, we need to deal seriously with that because it destroys unity and community. Families, work, church, everything. Anger is another one that we need to turn from as we pursue God and bring in healing to our community, which is an angry community and an unforgiving community. He wants to deal with the sins in our lives and heal through us, bring healing to our land. The word repent, like the, he uses the word turn in Chronicles, but the word is repent. The, the word repent in Greek means a change of not only mindset, but practice. So how do I know someone's not angry? How do I know someone's forgiven? It's not just because of what they say and what they think. I'll know it by their actions. I'll see it in their lives. It'll be demonstrated by the way they live. So we need to routinely practice honest self-examination as God's people. Turning, confessing, repenting, daily, weekly. It's a massive part of our humility before the Lord. I remember I was struggling with something greatly in my life a number of years ago. And uh, this is before I even thought ministry was in my in my future. I um, wasn't even thinking about it at all. And I was going through this really hard thing and I was at a repentant place and uh, I was like mourning a lot like over like, uh, some decisions I had made. And I went to see Dan Jansen and I sat in his office and uh, he says, Andrew, you're in the right place with God right now, even though you feel miserable. And I go, how come? He says, well, look at James 4, 8 and 9. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, there it is, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility goes directly in line with turning and embracing God's way. The good news is that God says, you do your part, and I'll do mine. And so in the last half of 17, he says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Do our people need forgiving? Do our, does our land need healing? I want to conclude with a video to show how the Lord, when, the, when God's people rise up, that the Lord can move in incredible ways in restoring. Now, about two years ago, I showed you two communities, one in, um, I think it was, I, I, just, I can't even remember the ones I showed you, but I showed you two in South America anyway, about how the, the land was healed through through God's people. I chose this one because this is actually about events that happened in Canada, in the Northwest Territories. And I'll share a little bit about why that one's so significant to me personally as one who grew up there. But um, rest of it, settle in. That's about 18 minutes, but it's well worth your time. And we'll conclude our service with this. So we're gonna watch this right now. Canada's eastern Arctic is divided into two primary domains, Nunavut, the country's newest self-governing territory, and Nunavik, 
an Inuit homeland in northern Quebec. Together, the region encompasses more than 2.7 million square kilometers. Remarkably, this vast and frigid landscape is inhabited by less than 30,000 natives. For hundreds of years, they traveled in clans. They had no collective voice. At these latitudes, the land is so cold that even trees refuse to grow. But it is the inner barrenness that does the real damage. For decades, the Inuit have struggled to find their identity. Robbed of any sense of place and purpose, many communities have spiraled toward the abyss. There was this great void. So many from that generation, they turned to alcohol. They lost their culture, so there was a lot of shame. For this town, it was like dark, dark, dark. It was like a nightmare. Uh, it was awful. It was very awful. I remember when people would die, we would go for morning and morning, you know, we would be sad because we have no hope. This is Kanyak in northern Quebec, and we have about maybe um, around 500 people here. Annie Tertuluk has lived on Quebec's remote Ungava Peninsula since 1964. As Annie and her husband Mark know all too well, alcohol became a troublesome companion to many Inuit. We were one of the worst um, couple in town because we were young and we were drinking. When my heart uh, was beating fast after drinking, I could hear Tabo uh, was waiting for me. I think the whole community was drinking at that time. I remember one time that the whole community was drunk. When we received our booze in the community all together, oh, you would hear people shouting there. I lost my brother because of alcohol. People shouting here. I lost a lot of friends. People fighting here. It was tearing up my life. It was bad. Oh my goodness, it was terrible. There were no laws. The frozen north was more like the Wild West. No police. Life was dangerous. No rules in the community. Our community was really uh, sleepless people with all crimes that we had. Women and children had little protection. To cover their pain, many young people turned to drugs, alcohol, and heavy metal music. Others simply walked through the door of no return. I had a big mirror in my room, and I draw demons. I have a sister. She was 22 when she killed herself. She hung herself. On the Hudson Bay side of Arctic Quebec, the community of Povanatuk, or POV as the locals call it, has its own story to tell. It did not start well. By the summer of 1991, conditions in this isolated outpost were so grave that a CBC television crew was flown in to investigate. Their disturbing findings were aired that September on Canada's national news magazine, The Journal. Something is happening in Pavanatuk, a cluster of teenage suicides and self-inflicted wounds. The story, entitled Deadly Summer, ran for nearly 17 minutes. The eighth teenage suicide of the year, an appalling statistic. More than 20 times the Canadian average. 
Harry Tuluga, father of five. The first thing that comes to mind is, oh no, what, what can we do? Why? Why? I was here for the total horror that was felt and expressed at the time. And outside the arcade each morning, the local drugs of choice, solvents and lubricants. We had an enormous epidemic of suicide of youth. The death certificate coldly codified the toll of this awful year. It seemed like there was one suicide every month. Then came the realization that a lot of our children were experiencing sexual abuse. Every single family was touched. It was total darkness at the time. And the scene in POV was no different than any other northern community. Even the land turned its back on its inhabitants. In many areas of the eastern Arctic, caribou, fish, and berries, once abundant, began to disappear. For a people already living on the edge, the situation was perilous. People were depressed, actually. We were sort of lost in a way. Looks like our community was cursed. While it appeared to some that God had abandoned Anguatizawak's descendants, in truth, God was the one seeking to reestablish the relationship. Back in February 1996, something happened. Throughout Pond Inlet, small groups of intercessors were pounding heaven with prayers for revival. Providing inspiration for this assault were two men with big hearts and worn-out knees, Arctic evangelist Billy Arnacook and local pastor Moses Kayak. That's when the people were convicted and were drawn uh, to the Lord in a great numbers. And uh, they were so convicted that they, had to, they felt they had to clean their houses. The dirt paths leading to John Turner's old church were suddenly congested with desperate townspeople. Everyone, it seemed, wanted to get rid of their illicit drugs, pornography, and heavy metal music. It was coming in like a flood. We had a big can, garbage can, right in front of the altar every night. They kept filling it up and filling it up. Every night, they went to the dump and burned them up. After five nights, the town dump was full. As community leaders considered incinerating the remaining items, they received encouragement from an unlikely source, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They had a bonfire uh, right about here where the iceberg is. The Mounties even provided logistical support. They said, we can even provide gas to burn up the junk. Nearly the entire community turned out for the burn. According to the RCMP, the value of illicit property destroyed during the revival was a staggering eighty to one hundred thousand dollars. It was a deep repentance. The Holy Spirit himself was speaking to the people. The whole community was completely transformed. The afterglow of this momentous occasion warmed hearts for months to come. But it also hinted at a fire yet unrealized. A fire so remarkable, it would be talked about half a world away. It happened in the middle of winter, February 28, 1999. 
Believers had gathered for a week of revival meetings at the Anglican Church. Hungry for God and troubled by new reports of community drug use, they decided to add a special Sunday afternoon youth service. Among those leading the meeting were Pastor Moses Kayak and his ministerial colleagues Joshua and James Ariak, all great-grandsons of the original lightkeeper, Angwatizawak. An invitation was offered for youth who felt they wanted to come closer to God. Worship leader Louis Ariak was praying over the youth that had gathered around the altar. I felt so close to God and he kept giving me this verse that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Something s started to happen that uh, was out of our control. This noise started coming. Yeah, it started softly, like you can barely hear it. A dual cassette deck used to record the service was still running off the soundboard. Right away, I wanted to stop. But it kept getting louder, and, and I started to notice that people were kind of getting a little nervous. It was so loud that everything started to shake. Fire went right through me. It sounded like a jet. Things started to shake. I started to shake. I told myself, there's no jets in Pondinoid. After this extraordinary visitation, it was evident the moment still had power. Every time I thought about it, I, I was greatly humble. Uh, thinking, thinking that uh, the Almighty God can visit us. When Pastor Moses Kayak first heard the low-pitched rumbling, he walked over to the church soundboard to adjust the settings. I tried this, not stop, tried this, no stop. When these efforts failed to correct the situation, he quickly turned down the master control. When this too failed, he shut the system off completely. Still, the sound and the recording continued. It shouldn't have been recorded. It's only by the miracle of God. He was completely humbled to the point where he wanted to continually come before God, kneel and ask for prayer and ask for the cleansing of the heart to become pure before him. This same Holy Spirit that graced Pond Inlet has also been visiting other communities in the eastern Arctic. One of them, the tiny hamlet of Opaluk, is situated on Ungava Bay in northeastern Quebec. Established in 1978, the community quickly became known as a place of sorrows. There have been a lot of tragedy. 
this person suicide himself. He was about 17 years old. There was another a girl, 19 years old, who also had suicide. What we did was we prayed for our community. We poked the curse in our community. The results were both immediate and tangible. I see that our community, it changed. I find since our prayer that time, we are set free. We're happy now. <laughs> School teacher Maggie Apartuk is the proverbial human dynamo, bearing witness of Christ's love at every opportunity. Since I'm a Christian, I always want to share my heart to the children. I always ask them, do you have a savior in your heart? The influence of the gospel in Opaluk's classrooms is pervasive and powerful. We start with the Lord's Prayer this morning. Sylvie Susi is a secular contract teacher from Southern Canada. I think most children here are pretty religious. According to Maggie, that may be an understatement. All of them are safe. All of them are born again. That's 40% of Opaluk's current population and its entire future. Things are also on the upswing over in POV. Longtime resident and local pastor Elias Salualuk is a happy witness to the change. In 1996, uh, this community was, was really revived, uh, really revived by the Lord. The whole community was really amazing. Once again, an important key was fervent, united prayer. Having a heart open to God, that was all it took. And then came the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the community. And the wailing, the wailing in the churches. The pain, the pain. The travail rose as incense before God. And the heavens opened. We were seeing results, a lot of results, good results. Suicide has completely gone on the downtrend. In fact, crime at all levels has diminished. But we have an all-forgiving and almighty God, and families have been healing over these past six, seven years now. It's been wonderful to see the movement of God in our community. While it is tempting to stop and celebrate God's work in POV and Opaluk, the story does not end here. And it's wonderful to see how God is moving, not just in POV, in all communities. Since people started to get saved, it's a different story. My slate is clean because of Jesus. See, God is saving these people we never thought could be changed. I found him. He's a big guy. I really found him. He's a big guy. Hearts and relationships have been mended. I've seen men get up and publicly repent that I have abused my children and, and I've abused my wife. My husband, he's helped me right now. We are, he's really changed his life. Many people have been healed from those wounds, especially women. God is using them today. God is just changing communities. Jesus was the answer to all their problems. 
whole communities. It's amazing. Uh, not every community in the Arctic is at the same level, but I don't think there's any community now where something is not happening. Everything, uh, it changed. It completely changed. It's spreading everywhere. The fire of the Lord is spreading. You can visit every community and you, you, I can tell you the same story. Kwaktek and Tsukahotso. Kwaktek and Kudjuak. Aupaluk. Kubungzuk. And Rosaluk Bay. Clyde River. Arctic Bay. Panalek. Lake Harbor. Tsukahotek is starting. Kwaktek and Tsukahotek is starting. Oh, what I see is beautiful. <laughs> The gospel has also begun to infiltrate the political arena. According to longtime Arctic missionary Roger Armbruster, God is raising up a new generation of native leaders that is not shy about declaring the lordship of Christ. This mace is made of a Norwell tusk. Now, this is the symbol of the authority of the Nunavut legislature that's brought into the legislature every time they meet to do official business. And it's written on paper inside this mace the prayer from the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some mayors I know of open their council chambers for prayer meetings twice a week. I know that without God on this meeting, it's not going to be good. So he's always included in everything. As the Bible says, when the righteous rules, the people rejoice. God has even touched the land itself. The land is, is starting to produce. And become productive. 20 years ago there was no caribou and since that time the, the caribou are coming back here. Even fishing the lakes were starting to grow. Even the land is starting to produce some little plants. We are so blessed. <laughs> a hope that once invaded the heart of a solitary seal hunter is now on display in churches, classrooms and council chambers across the eastern Arctic. It is a reminder that the love of God is not only deep and persistent, it is also purposeful. For application going forward, I am going to uh, send a text out to the church or, or email or text to everyone response to text and response to email. Um, I, uh, I shouldn't say no one. If I want to get the best response, I should text. <laughs> uh, we are going to actually, uh, as a community, we're going to put this into practice. And we did it a couple times about a year ago, but we're going to do it again. Um, for about a 40-day period, we're going to meet corporately. Those who can make it, again, like, and there's no obligation in this, but I'm going to have a time of prayer daily. Well, I think we should meet down at the park um, by the river, and, meet, and uh, I'll figure out the time, but I'm thinking something like 6.30 in the morning, from 6.30 to 7 for 40 days. Whoever can make it from the church comes. And we pray for the community, we pray for our governing leaders, and uh, we ask the Lord to start to heal our community. And I chose 6.30 only because most of us who have jobs have to be there somewhere pretty early, usually, you know, sometimes 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. If it's from 6.30 to 7, it should clear the schedule for most people to get where they need to go. If, however, um, let's say half a dozen to a dozen of you can make it at that time, but there's another group that wants to meet at a different time, then please let me know and we'll, we'll make another time in the afternoon or evening for the other people that can't make that time. But I'd like to corporately meet. Um, 
down at the park. I'll email you or text you about the day that we'll start this and we'll go forward. Even Sunday morning, we'll meet. So we'll meet down at 6.30 and then come straight to the church like a couple hours later. It'll be great. And we'll just ask the Lord to start with us in those prayer meetings. We'll start with us and then we'll move forward into the community and see what he does. So stay tuned for that uh, text to come and a starting date for that. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and for our Holy Spirit was with us and continues to guide and lead us. We look forward to the changes that you are going to make in us and into the community. We, by faith, believe that you have a lot more for open folks than it's already been shown. And we come to you in faith, believing that you can make drastic changes. Okotoks is an interesting community because everything looks so good on the outside. Uh, we don't maybe have the, the, you know, the same level of dysfunction externally that is sort of totally always noticeable, like it may have been in those northern communities. We don't have 30,000 people outside yelling at each other in the streets, but we have dysfunction in massive ways. It's so well hidden, Lord. So well hidden. In, in, in the, Again, Lord, but we are seeing more and more things come to the forefront. And so we just want you to go ahead of us and, and just affect change. We ask for a revival to break out in Okotoks and the surrounding area. And maybe what starts here move Tire River and Black Diamond and Lethbridge and, and Edmonton and whatever, Lord, just whatever you have for us. We can start with just a small group of believers. So uh, go ahead of us and Guide us on how to do this and how to effectively take responsibility for our church and for the churches and for the community. In Jesus' name. Amen.